Securities and financial planning offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. Welcome to Planning for Win Financial Guidance in Life. I'm Kevin Pinkley, and thank you for joining us today. As a financial advisor, I work with clients to protect, preserve, and grow wealth. And one of life's circumstances that can interrupt that process is divorce. Today, we'll be discussing property concerns during divorce. And Ernie Martin is joining us today. He's a family law attorney. Uh, thank you very much for joining us, Ernie. Good morning. Um, could you tell us a little bit about your practice and how uh, the listeners could contact you? I'm a general civil practitioner. I, I focus on family law, but I do other civil matters. I work for a law firm called Courier and Martin. That's C-U-R-R-I-E-R and Martin. You can find us on the web. Uh, as always, I, I, I enjoy talking about family law matters with you and uh, getting the word out to the public. Well, um, so when we talk about property concerns during divorce, we can cover a lot of ground. Where would you like to start with today? I think the most important thing to understand about property division is what is community property? It's a term that some people out there might have heard, and let's kind of talk about community property today so that people will understand. In Texas, community property is the, is the rule. In other words, everything that the parties own is presumed to be community property. There's no real definition to community property. However, suffice it to say that husband doesn't own it, wife doesn't own it, it belongs to the marriage. It doesn't matter who bought it, it doesn't matter whose name it's in, it belongs to the marriage if it was acquired during the marriage. And again, Everything is presumed to be community property. Opposed to community property is what we call self, uh, separate property. So basically anything that isn't community property is separate property. Uh, separate property comes in three broad categories. They include items that you owned prior to marriage. They include items that you received during the marriage as a gift or items that you receive during the marriage through an inheritance. There's also a kind of a fourth subcategory, I call it a subcategory anyway, of personal injury proceeds. If a person received personal injury proceeds during the course of a marriage, that too is separate property, but that gets a little bit confusing sometimes because any proceeds that were a result of economic loss, say reimbursement of hospital bills or lost wages, would be community property. So we have community property and we have separate property. The court will divide the community property. They cannot divide the separate property. In Texas, the legislature wrote the statute to read, the court shall make a just and right division of the community property so as to equalize the parties. 
A lot of people get into wondering, okay, what's that mean? And most people either hear it from a neighbor or a friend or family member, well, that means 50-50, equalize, equal, 50-50 is equal. Well, that's correct in the math books, but not always correct for the court. So in other words, we might have circumstances where uh, the spouses are not situated equally and 50-50 doesn't equalize. I, I wanted to ask you a question. So when we say property, so we're talking about a home, a car, a boat, bank accounts, checking accounts, potentially anything of value, correct? That's, yeah, it's everything. Yep. Everything that you could possibly own from your uh, intangible things, such as say, uh, uh, some stock options that don't even really exist, uh, down to you know the grains of salt and a salt shaker, if you want to get that detailed with it. But for sure, cash, real property, any kind of vehicle, uh, all your personal property, um, you know, basically anything that you can think of. Rental income? Yeah. Rental income is community property, and that gets into some pretty pretty difficult areas, but yeah. we can we can jump into that. Okay. Well, I, I just I just so you know, when people mention property, that means different things to different people. And what I've noticed with clients is sometimes this concept of property, they exclude certain things that we would call property. So, um, like you said, it, it includes everything. It includes everything. Yeah. Okay. It includes everything. And again, if, if, if the law books would consider something property, then it's property. Some people, I had this academic debate many, many years ago with one of my former bosses as to whether or not money was actually property. I don't know how that ever worked out, but as far as the court's concerned for divorce, cash is property. It's subject to division. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, I would be on your side. Yeah, definitely. So, okay. Well, um, so property, if we delve down a little deeper, um, do you want to talk about community property first or separate property? Uh, let's talk about the community property. And again, I always like, they go hand in hand. Um, they go hand in hand. Again, the community property, really, when you think about it, is a pretty easy concept as far as it's everything, okay? The person in a divorce, the party in a divorce, who is going to assert that they have separate property and therefore it's not subject to division, they must prove by clear and convincing evidence that their separate property is in fact separate property. Now sometimes that's a pretty easy thing to do. Let's mm -hmm. take for instance a very common thing that happens particularly with second and third marriages and on down the line or just the ages of the parties I suppose. Uh, some people come into a marriage already owning a house. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe they got that in the first marriage. Maybe they just owned it, whatever the case may be. Houses, real property, is always in writing. It's always with a, a deed, and the deeds are always recorded with the county clerk's office. So it's not very difficult to get a copy of the deed and to then present it as my name is the only name on the deed, it's recorded on, you know, November 1st, 1996. We got married on November 1st, 2000. So clearly the house predates the marriage. Clearly it's separate property. Clearly that party has met their burden of proof 
to show that it's their separate property. Um, and that can apply to many things, the title on an automobile. Um, now, sometimes we have items that parties own prior to marriage where you just don't have documentation. Uh, you know, say you've got, um, you know, your, your, your basic household stuff, some furniture. Uh, the receipts of which have long since been tossed away. Um, again, how do you prove that that is your separate property? And that can become very difficult. Well, going back to the home or the house, you know, I've noticed with our clients, and I wanted to know if you were seeing the same thing, that even though in some cases it's easy uh, to follow the line of ownership there with second or third marriages, but do you find that there's confusion there with, with your clients as to who actually owns the home or how they could commingle um, the assets and there be some confusion as to who owns the house? Or is it just really maybe one party misrepresenting the issue or kind of all the above? I think there can be a lot of confusion about property. Um, look, it's very common for clients to come into my office and, you know, they, they could be, you know, generally speaking, older folks, um, been around for a while, put it that way. And a lot of them, I'd say more often than not, have the misconception, my paycheck is mine, your paycheck is yours, my bank account's mine, your bank account's yours, my credit card debt is mine, your credit card debt is yours. Um, and they, they've, they've maintained separate financial lives during the course of the marriage. So they think that basically keeps them separate, that there is no community property because they never had any joint accounts, okay? And again, community property has nothing to do with the joint accounts. In fact, and I don't want to mean, don't mean to make this more complicated than than it needs to be, but say for instance on the house, uh, party A owns the house prior to marriage. Again, they've got the obvious smoking gun piece of evidence and that's the deed, okay? But for whatever reason, party A put party B's name on that deed during the marriage, okay? Now, what do we have? Have we created community property? Mm, maybe. But more importantly, the exact characteristic is party A is now a joint tenant with party B, and they own the house as joint tenants, separate property. Okay? Gotcha. Okay. Now, for, for, for argument's sake and for, for most purposes, you could treat it as community property for division as long as it's going to be a 50-50 type of split, okay? If somebody were seeking a disproportionate split to that uh, to that joint piece of property, the other person can say, well, listen, we're, we're joint tenants on separate property. That means it falls into the civil law where typically joint tenancies in Texas are divided 50-50. Okay. So, so what I'm hearing is that a couple could manage their household however they want to, but sometimes that runs counter to the property laws in the state of Texas, and it's kind of a shock to them when that is explained to them, like when you were saying, I've always maintained my separate checking account and so did my spouse, but 
th that's how you ran your household, but that that's not in line with the laws of the state of Texas, and it's kind of a shock sometimes, I think. Oh, it can be a brutal shock for people. Uh, again, if, if they've done all their financial planning, um, everything that they've managed uh, was done with a particular outcome in mind, and then they sit down with a lawyer and find out that they've basically been spinning their wheels for the last 20 years, mm -hmm. um, creating a community estate when they thought that they had a separate estate. Um, and, and vice versa, uh, you, you, you run into folks who they think because they've been married for so much time, and again, going back to, say, a separate property house, they, they, they lived in that house. It's, it is referred to as the marital residence by the court. That doesn't mean, that doesn't give it any identity, identity as separate property or community property, by the way. It's just where the married couple lives, so it's the marital residence. But some people will take that to mean they own it, that it is part of the community that they have been contributing to it in one shape, form, or another for the past 20 years, and then they find out 20 years later when divorce ensues that, no, that still belongs to the other party, and right. the court can't divide it. Okay. And I just wanted to mention one other particular issue. So a lot of times I hear employee benefits uh, maybe you'll hear one spouse explain that that's not community property. And what I'm talking about is either a company 401k or a company pension. So the example could be uh, one spouse worked for an employer and they offered a pension. And a lot of times I hear that spouse explain to the other spouse, I was the employee there. It's my benefit. We're not going to be able to divide it. I don't have to divide it. It's my property. And of course, if that was accumulated during the marriage, then in most cases that's community property, correct? Yeah, again, anything that was acquired during the marriage is in fact, again, presumed to be community property. Mm -hmm. uh, now, let's, let's talk about some retirement accounts and, and different ways that those things are applied. So you mentioned pension. Mm -hmm. uh, pensions are quickly becoming a thing of the past. Uh, many years ago, companies started providing more along the lines of 401ks and less pensions, but there's still pensions out there. And so we have to deal with that. Um, now, okay, how do we decide on a pension what's community and what's separate property? Okay, take a couple different examples. Uh, party A has the pension. The pension didn't start until after the marriage. Mm -hmm. So divorce ensues, so 100% of that pension is divisible by the court as community property. Um, we, won't, we won't bother with trying to figure out present-day values on sure. pensions, that type of thing. For right now, we can, we can do that a little bit later. But at any rate, the idea there is that we look at date of marriage, we look at what of the pension was earned on or after that date of marriage. And believe it or not, the people who manage these things can figure that out. That's the good news for the lawyers out there is we don't actually have to sit there and try to do the math on this. We just need to know date of marriage, date of divorce, and somebody else does the rest. Uh, so they can boil out uh, what is community property interest, what is separate property interest based on dates. Now, take another example, party A, he starts working, oh, you know, 10 years prior to marriage, and he's earning that pension. They get married 10 years later, they get divorced, and Party A has continued to work at the same employer, continued to earn that pension. Mm 
So we basically have 10 years of pension that were earned before marriage, so that's separate property. We have 10 years of pension that were earned on or after date of marriage, which is community property. And again, we can divide just that community property interest. Date of marriage, date of divorce, that's what's divisible. And again, the bean counters at the fund administrator figures out what that means in exact dollars. They all have their own rules as to how they pay out and, and, and what those pensions are worth. Um, same rule applies to 401k. 401ks are a little bit easier to do because we have a present day value on 401ks. We can look at the statement, hey, it's worth $100,000 today. Now again, we have to apply the same rules. When did the 401k start? What was the date of marriage? Day of divorce in the future? And that's gonna be our community property interest is anything in that 401k that has accumulated since the date of marriage. Now, if you peel back the layers of the onion a little bit, what we're talking about is the dividends, the interest, the market gains in that 401k are community property, right? Why? Well, because it's income. Ultimately, it's income. And once you take that 401k money, once you actually realize the income on that 401k money, you would pay taxes on it. So again, that's kind of a tester of community property. Don't, don't bank on it in every case, but for a lot of things, income, income either actually received or the right to receive is community property. So, Well, well what you just mentioned there, Ernie, is important. So a lot of times I have clients come into my office and maybe they have some version, you know, minor understanding of what is community property and, and they've already divided up the 401k, um, but in some cases they've left out the interest and income that could be there uh, because maybe one party says, well, that's not part of the community estate. And, and look, folks, when someone works for a company for 10 years, 20 years, 30 years, and 40 years, those assets that are accruing over time or the dividends and interest, that is a substantial dollar usually and it needs to be included because, yes, it's part of the estate, but it's a lot of money is what I'm trying to say. So that's another reason why you have to reach out and contact a professional on this because they're going to know what to include, what not to include, and how it's done per the state because I know I have, and Ernie, I know you have, that people have in some ways divided things up at their kitchen table and it may be pretty close, and in a lot of cases, it's very wrong, and they didn't account for all the dollars or the laws uh, that we're talking about here, correct? That is correct. Uh, you know, the old saying, we fix bad haircuts. Um, unfortunately, lawyers can't go in and fix bad property divisions once they've been signed off by the court. So you touched on something that I think, again, like I would always say, always consult with a professional. Look, it's not impossible to do your own property division, to do your own divorce for that matter, okay? But you need to get educated, okay? You need to get educated. Sometimes that involves sitting down with the lawyer and doing a thorough consultation, maybe keeping the attorney available on a consultation basis so you have somebody to ask questions of. Um, at the same time, 
if you've got any complexity to your marital estate at all, I just highly encourage people to to use attorneys. Uh, that doesn't mean you have to go break the bank. Shop around. Attorneys, you know, they come in different shapes and sizes and different price tags. So again, you might find that that uh, there are attorneys out there that are cost affordable for your situation. Um, now, one thing I want to really stress here, because you've touched on it, Kevin, and it's always something that horrifies me. Uh, you know, I hate to see it. I, look, I, I take no no glee in somebody who decides they're not going to use an attorney, and then they do something terrible, and they've ruined their estate. Uh, it doesn't give me any happiness whatsoever. I want people to understand certain things. There, there are definitely some do's and don'ts. Never, ever liquidate a retirement account to give your spouse their share, okay? That's a no-no. We have ways of doing that that don't involve liquidation, that don't involve tax hits, that don't involve uh, early withdrawal penalties. Um, And again, see an attorney, see a tax professional about these items rather than liquidating a retirement account. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned that, Ernie, because that is all too common and later, once the dust settles, if you will, then the parties realize how painful that is financially that they made that decision. And it kind of seems like a no-brainer of let's, let's go ahead and do this and we can access these funds and divide it. But they're just ahead of themselves, if you will, and it's going to be costly regardless of the size of that account. And it's costly because there's going to be less dollars there, but when you talk about the tax implications, well, there's kind of a double whammy there. So the assets are usually reduced, and then there's the tax issues. So um, it's so important, and, you know, eventually people find this out afterwards. But, I mean, gosh, like you said, just a phone call can be very helpful to get you in front of the right person. Yeah, and it's usually... Again, when, when people do that, when they liquidate that retirement account, that let's face it, the retirement accounts usually, I think almost always, are going to be in one party's name or the other, such as an IRA. I mean, by its very definition, it's an individual retirement account, so it's going to be one party's name. Well, that party whose name the asset is in is the one who will suffer the greatest consequences because they're the one who owes the tax. Right. Uh, they're the one who's going to get hit with the penalty. The other person got cash. Right. Uh, So, (laughs) you know, be very, very careful. And and I will say this. Usually the person liquidating that retirement account is the one who is not consulting the attorney. So, again, be very, very careful with this stuff. Make sure you know what it is you're doing. Good point, Ernie. Well, we're going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, we're going to learn more about property division during divorce with Ernie Martin. Thank you. Securities and financial planning offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing. We're back. This is Kevin Pinkley with Planning for Win, Financial Guidance in Life. And we're continuing with Ernie Martin, 
So let's continue with property division issues during divorce. Very good. Uh, we talked about the community property, and we talked about separate property. And I want to go back to the house scenario, because that's one, again, that, that seems to be one of the most prevalent issues when it comes to community property and separate property. So we go back to the example where party A owns the house prior to marriage. Let's just plug in that party A bought the house maybe a year or two before the marriage and financed it. So very little of the house is paid for. Uh, the parties get married. They live in that party A's house. That's the marital residence where they reside for the next 20 years until divorce ensues. Okay. So we've talked about how the court cannot divide that separate property. So it's party A's house. He never added party D or party B to the deed. The court can't award that house to party B. That's about unfair, isn't it? Sure. <laughs> okay. Most people would think so, and including the legislature. So we have this beast, this thing called reimbursement. Oftentimes we refer to things as equitable contribution as well. Reimbursement basically works like this. If the marriage, remember when the marriage started, the paychecks became community property. So the marriage paid the house note. The marriage paid the utility bills. The marriage paid for the landscaping. The marriage paid for this. The marriage paid for that. Insurance, taxes, the whole nine yards was paid for by community property. 20 years of this. The guy probably knocked out most, if not all, of his principal in those 20 years. So now he owns that house free and clear. Wow. Okay. Party B doesn't get anything? Mm -hmm. No. Party B can make a claim for a reimbursement. We know right away that reduction of principal on a piece of real property is an improvement to that piece of real property. We've increased equity. By reducing the principal, we've created equity. Um, therefore, the separate estate of Party A has been improved at the expense of the community estate. When I say estates, I'm kind of talking about, eh, ah, it's getting a little bit deep, but you know what the parties have. So we have marital estates, we have separate estates. Um, we have, excuse me, we have marital states. In marital states, we have community estates and separate estates. Uh, the community estate improves the separate estate by knocking out, say, $100,000 of principal amount due on that separate real property. Well, the, the separate estate's got to pay it back. Mm -hmm. The separate estate's not allowed to benefit through the use of the community to the extent at the other half of the community. So basically, the $100,000 goes back to the community estate where it is then divided by the court in whatever percentage that the court applies to that division. So let's just say we're doing a 50-50 division. Party B would get $50,000, okay? So there is a little fairness to it. However, there's a lot of complexity to it. And I gave a very, very simple, simple scenario. You could take more difficult scenarios. Uh, during the course of the marriage, uh, the parties agreed to put a pool into the backyard of that separate house. Okay, is that an improvement? Mm -hmm. 
Sure, I would think so. Well, what if you don't swim? Well, yeah, there's a thought, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Might look good, yeah. but you never know. So again, whether something is an improvement or not mm -hmm. can be in the eye of the beholder. There's nothing out there that necessarily says a pool's an improvement. It depends on who the buyer is. Mm -hmm. Some people are looking for a house that has a pool already in it and they're willing to pay top dollar for that thing. Well, in that situation, that would be an improvement. Mm -hmm. Other people look at pools as liabilities. Uh, you know, gee whiz, that's a big hole I got to fill in with dirt. Um, so it just depends. It just depends. Certainly distinguish that from some of the other items that I mentioned earlier. Maintenance on that separate property house. Taxes on that separate property house. Insurance on that separate property house. Simple repairs on that separate property house. That's rent. Mm -hmm. That's gone. You don't get it back. Even if you're the separate property owner, your utility bill, your electric bill, I mean, you pay for it. You enjoy your air conditioning while you're using it, but it's, it's gone. The money's gone. So that's nothing that can be divided or reimbursed. Improvements can. Simply cost, day-to-day -day cost of living cannot. Well, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned reimbursements because, as you know, a lot of people have their own ideas of, well, here's how things were handled in the past household-wise, and maybe I didn't get to participate in those decisions, and any potential reimbursement is just gone and not there. That's, that's what I hear a lot, where a couple would come in and one party might think, okay, it's history and, and there's no way to recover any type of dollars or reimbursement. And in a lot of cases, as you were explaining, that's just not the case. It just needs to be addressed. That's correct. Yep. That's correct. So you mentioned um, reimbursements. I wanted to bring up the idea of gifts. So let's say a parent or a grandparent um, transfers an asset, whether it's a check or a car or property to um, their loved one, their relative. And then years later, uh, each one of those parties, uh, the married couple, has a different idea of if that's separate property or joint property. So here's an example. Uh, Grandma and Grandpa gave us $50,000 10 years ago, and here we are now getting a divorce. There usually is a heated topic or heated discussion about is that $50,000 joint property or separate, or someone gave us the lake house. And um, so we see that a lot, don't we? Oh, yes. Yeah. Oh, yes. Uh, well, the first thing you have to do in that analysis is figure out, does the $50,000 still exist? Right. Okay, because again, if it got spent, chances are it is gone, mm -hmm. depending on what you spend it on. Let's take a scenario, got the $50,000, you took the world trip. You went, you went around the world, you spent that $50,000 on fun. It's gone. There's nothing there to reimburse. Yep. Okay. All right. As opposed to you took the $50,000 gift and you put it into your real property. Mm -hmm. Maybe you added an addition to the house or paid down the note. Something where you can point to it and say, there it is. It's still there. It still shows up on paper. Okay, So that's one thing is you have to make sure that the asset is still available. Then obviously the person that's going to assert that it was a gift to them and only to them is going to have to prove it. Again, the court, the law, presumes 
that that gift was actually community property. So out comes the Christmas card. Grandma and Grandpa wrote on the Christmas card to our adult son and only to our adult son and not to his soon-to-be-divorced wife. Um, okay, well, that's fairly good evidence, assuming that you can get that Christmas card into evidence. That's pretty good evidence that that was a gift intended for one party and not the other party, and therefore, theoretically, the burden of proof has been met, and the $50,000 belongs to the gift recipient. Um, again, if the other side says, look, it was a gift to both of us, and we don't have the Christmas card, there's probably not much argument over whether it's a gift or not. Mm -hmm. It's just an argument of as to who that gift was to. Gotcha. Okay. And again, where does the court fall on that? You know, really, it comes down to testimony. It comes down to credibility, right? And I think, generally speaking, on something like that, the court's just going to presume that it was to both of them until one of them can prove that it wasn't that way. Okay. okay. So we talked a little bit about community property and separate property, and there's ways to resolve those issues, but I'll use the word they tend to be a little messy, a little involved and it tends to raise the angst uh, during divorce. Is there anything a person could do proactively that if they're getting into a second or third marriage that they can do to protect themselves moving forward? Absolutely. Listen, a lot of people, as I kind of stated earlier, the first time they're getting this education, this bad news, is when they sit down with a lawyer and consult and now they start to learn about how community property laws work, which when we really peel back the layers of the onion, the community property laws tend to punish the higher income earner, okay? So people will comment on how unfair the community property laws can be. Well, we gotta look at what the options were before the parties got married. Mm -hmm. Did you have to engage, did you have to settle on having to follow the legislature's rules? No, you can make your own rules. What we're talking about is a prenuptial agreement, also referred to, or which also can be had after the marriage, called a postnuptial agreement, or a partition or exchange agreement. Okay, how does that work? Well. Basically, you are going to have to see an attorney. And this is another common mistake for people. They feel like they wrote it out on a piece of notebook paper. This is mine. That's yours. This will forever be mine. That will forever be yours. And they both signed it. Maybe they got it notarized. Maybe they didn't. Is that a viable prenuptial agreement? No. It's going to be lacking in a lot of ways. Uh, so if you are interested in creating your own set of rules, which involves oftentimes of not having a community property estate. You definitely want to sit down with a lawyer and talk to them about that and probably hire them for that service. Now, these prenuptial agreements that I'm referring to are highly enforceable in Texas if they're done properly. And when I say done properly, I mean they have to be just so. Um, one common fallacy on these things is that uh, one party will have an attorney the other one won't, and later on people can say, well, the, the agreement wasn't fair. I was under duress or I wasn't informed. So again, when we do these agreements properly, 
we are addressing the fact that one party has an attorney and the other one doesn't, and they're acknowledging that they don't have an attorney. They're acknowledging that they could have gone to an attorney. Mm -hmm. They chose not to, even after everybody advised them to go to an attorney. See how it takes away any argument that they might have later on that they weren't properly advised. Gotcha. Well, I, I got to use one example, Ernie, that some people will use as an argument not to get a prenuptial agreement. So you'll hear one party say, well, I'm a clear thinker. I'm a strong-willed person. I'm successful. I would never get myself in that situation because I know better. Well, what happens is people get older. Um, maybe they're not as clear thinking today as they would be many decades from now. They could become ill. They can be in an accident. And then what tends to happen is someone else starts to make decisions on the assets of what you thought was your separate property. And I've seen it time and time again. And so if it's not a spouse doing that, I've even seen examples where um, the second marriage's children are trying to come in and make those decisions. And it's just so simple to sit down with an attorney, put your wishes on paper, and then proceed, and then in most cases, you don't ever have to worry about it or have a conversation about it again, but I see people talking themselves out, and you know, us sitting here today as we are now, and us at 85 or 75, or if we have a serious medical issue, we're not gonna be the same person that we are sitting here, so it's important to get that in place for when things tend to happen later. I couldn't agree more. That's all about planning, and it's all about, you know, setting forth the path of how you want your life to be. And, and again, we're all going to hit a point where we need help, where, we, like you said, we don't really think as clearly as, heck, I don't think as clearly now as I did 10 <laughs> years ago, and so on and so forth. Uh, I'm not quite there to uh, throw dirt in my face, but, you know, I'll get there sooner or later. So, again, proper planning is always important in these things. Um, one thing I would add about these agreements, these prenuptial, postnuptial agreements. Um, again, when you're doing them before marriage, it's a wise thing, but people will resist them under the basis of, you know, let's face it, their own personal philosophies about what marriage is, okay? It's almost as if people think, look, if I'm going and getting a prenuptial agreement done, why am I even getting married, okay? Uh, what's the point? Because I'm basically just saying I'm going to get divorced. Okay, I, I'm not going to argue with people on that point. That's your personal philosophy. That's the personal philosophy. But when you look at statistics and you look and see 50% of all marriages in this country, strike that, 50% of all first marriages in this country end in divorce. 60% of all second marriages in this country end in divorce, and the odds just keep getting worse. Third marriage is 65%, so on and so forth. So you have to be realistic that, look, marriage, people get married for different reasons, but the idea is statistically, sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't. And you have to prepare for the sometimes it doesn't. Listen, if you have a 50-50 shot of getting in a car wreck, are you going to wear your seatbelt? Yeah. 
If you have a 5% chance of getting in a car wreck, you're going to wear your seatbelt. Fortunately, we're past the days where people think, you know, it'll never happen to me. We all know that there's a good chance you can get in a car wreck, so we wear seatbelts. It's not just the law. It's a good idea. Well, again, when you have 50-50 odds that it's going to rain, you carry an umbrella. No, I agree. And Ernie, um, I originally had that thought of I wasn't on board with the prenuptial agreement, but 20 years later of working with clients, I've seen so many examples where people are destitute because they didn't have it, and in some cases they didn't marry the person that they thought they did or circumstances changed. And it, and it is literally a disaster. So, you know, I, I was on board with that originally. But 20 years later, um, I, I don't feel that way anymore. Um, well, Ernie, thank you for joining us today. Um, we've covered a lot about property, and there's still more to continue. So perhaps on another day, we can continue with property division during divorce. Oh, by all means, uh, thank you for having me and love to come back and discuss more about property division. We didn't really begin to talk about how the courts divide things up, you know, and again, that's an important concept as well, but we'll save that for another time. Okay, great. Well, thank you for listening to Planning for Win, Financial Guidance in Life, and you can join us next month, the last Thursday of the month at 1 p.m., and you can check us out online at Lone Star Community Radio. Thank you very much. And Ernie, one more time, how could the listeners get in touch with you? Again, that's Courier and Martin, 281-890-7090, www.couriermartin.com. Thank you. Securities and financial planning offered through LPL Financial, a registered investment advisor. Member FINRA SIPC. The opinions voiced in this show are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. To determine which investments may be appropriate for you, consult with your attorney, accountant, and financial advisor or tax advisor prior to investing.